0: So the reading is um, 1 Samuel, chapter 13, starting at verse 23. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer,
1: Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his
0: father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer,
1: Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few.
0: Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then,
1: we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given into into our
0: hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armour bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armour bearer,
1: Climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel.
0: Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet, with his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him,
2: "'Muster the forces and see who has left us.'
0: When they did, it was Jonathan and his armour-bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah,
2: "'Bring the ark of God.'
0: At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest,
2: "'Withdraw your hand.'
0: Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle." they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond beth aven Now the Israelites were in distress that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying,
2: Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies.
0: So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth, because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the stuff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the, sho- the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said,
1: My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brighten when I tasted
0: a little of this
1: honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the blood that they took from their enemies. Would not slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater.
0: That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Eidolon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in
2: it. You have broken faith. He said, roll a large stone over here at once.
0: Then he said,
2: go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it.
0: So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said,
2: Let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive.
0: Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, Let us inquire of God here. So Saul
2: asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand?
0: But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said,
2: Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my own son Jonathan, he must die.
0: But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites,
2: You stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here.
0: Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel.
2: Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is with me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thumen.
0: Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said,
2: Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son.
0: And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan,
2: Tell me what you have done.
0: So Jonathan told him,
1: I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and
0: now I must die. Saul said,
2: May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan.
0: But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. The name of his elder daughter was Merab, and that of his younger was Mishal. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaz, the name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service.
3: Hey, thank you, Tom, very much indeed. And a uh, special thank you to the audience for reading. You read right to the end, so nothing more, nothing more to read out. Um, uh, Josiah. Um, you are absolutely uh, perfect Jonathan. Have you, um, have you ever gone rock climbing? Yeah, you have. Have you ever done anything without your father's permission? Perhaps you'd better not ask you that. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much all three of you for reading. That was absolutely fantastic. My name's Jeremy and uh, it's a real privilege to be with you together at Trinity Church, Islington. Hello to you if you're online. I think we're allowed to wave at each other. I think that's about the extent uh, of our interaction this afternoon. Really good to see you. And uh, we're going to come back to that part of the Bible which teaches us about the Lord's unstoppable salvation. Who can hinder, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Just two things to say. First of all, you might be a scrambler or an explorer, in which case you've got a a bag with some things inside. Is that right, Amelia? Yes, excellent. Um, And you'll find a spot the difference in that um, we'll come back to that a little bit later on, but do be getting on with that. That would be quite helpful. Um, if you're grown up, um, then I'm afraid you haven't got to spot the difference. But um, do please um, log on to our Zoom group. We've got a discussion group a little bit later on. In fact, two discussion groups, one at six and one at seven o'clock. Uh, if you haven't got the link for that, just get in touch with me, uh, jeremy at trinityislington.org, and uh, we'll give you all the details for that. Discussion groups at 6 and 7 o'clock. I haven't got time to cover all the details of that passage. We're not going to talk about umin and thummin or anything like that. But if you want to ask questions, then please uh, log on to those groups. And it's just free discussion about some of the things we've learned from this amazing part of the Bible. Good. Well, God wrote the Bible, so it would be wise to ask him for help. Let's um, pray as we begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have something to say to us this afternoon. And so, um, like that little boy Samuel in the temple, we want to ask you to speak because your servants are listening. Now, Father God, please help us to to read and to learn and to understand the deep truths of your word. as As a result, Father, I pray that none of us this afternoon would walk out of that door unchanged. And we ask that very confidently, Father, because we know that you love us and that you're a merciful and a speaking God. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, about a year ago, um, I received an email. I saw it there in my inbox, and uh, the subject line was the UK's top leaders. So Christ. And uh, in this email it said that they had identified, true uh, story, they'd identified the top thousand leaders in the country, and they wanted to write a book about them. And um, in particular, they wanted to write a feature about me. Now, um, I, I have to confess, for a few minutes, uh, I was a little bit flattered. I mean, I, I'm just a minister of a small church, but you know, maybe someone had recognized some of my, uh, some of my gifts. And um, then I read a little bit further down the email and uh, in order to get that book published, they wanted a copy of my passport, my mother's maiden name, my bank account details and my PIN number. So I think probably it wasn't quite the opportunity that I, that I thought it was. Um, the UK's top leaders. Um, and the thing is, I mean, leadership is a big issue, isn't it? I don't know if you're in the workplace and maybe you've had some leadership training. Leadership is a big thing in our country. And to have a really effective leader, you need the right person in the right place. Yeah, That's when leadership really works, when someone has the, the right qualities and the right level of responsibility. You need the, the character and you need the role. Yeah, That's when you start to see leadership really working. Which is why it's sad as we come to this part of 1 Samuel, 1, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're coming towards the end of Saul's reign. 14, 15 and 16 are all about the, the, the sort of failure of Saul's reign. We're going to have the last part of, this one, uh, of, of 1 Samuel next week and, and then we're going to break for a bit. We're coming to the end of a section. But as we come to the end of Saul's reign, and we look at chapter 14 this afternoon we see one person with courage but no kingship and another person with kingship but no courage <laughs> that's a sad thing because we never find the right person and the right position at the same time one person with courage but no kingship that's Jonathan one person with kingship but no courage that's Saul. Which is is why this part of the Bible is for people who who just despair of poor leadership. Maybe the the right leaders held back or or the wrong leaders pushed forwards. I don't know if you've experienced that. Leaders who who don't seem to show courage. And over the last year we we, we may have seen that in, in our country or even in our church. And that's why this part of the Bible is for people who are looking for, or who have found, true leadership in Jesus Christ, and want to be more devoted to Him as a result. I don't know if that's you who want to just trust themselves to His leadership. That's our aim this afternoon, and it begins in, in chapter fourteen with the account of two leaders, Jonathan and Saul, son and father. And scramblers and explorers, I don't know how you do, but that spot the difference. But how are you doing? (laughs) Doing well. Okay, 10 differences to find, I think. You found five. You're halfway there. But us grown-ups, we're also going to be doing a spot the difference between Saul and his son, Jonathan. So the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 23, we're going to think about Jonathan. He has courage, but no kingship. Courage, but no kingship. Let me remind you of what happens in the first half of this chapter. It's quite an eventful chapter, isn't it? Uh, so the Philistines, they're the enemies of God's people. They're in a, a place called Michmash. And uh, brave Jonathan, the king's son, decides to go over and attack them. This is what it says in verse one. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side that he did not tell his father. (laughs) It it doesn't say why he doesn't tell his dad, but those of us who've got sons can sort of imagine, uh, can imagine why he didn't let on. I I think his dad would have been livid, basically. In fact, where is Jonathan's dad? Have a look down at verse two. Uh, Jonathan's sitting under a pomegranate tree in Gibeah. Can you see that in verse two? Um, he's he's gradually moving away from the Philistines. Actually, Gibby is just a little bit further away from the Philistines than he was in the last chapter. And um, you can see he's hanging out with in, in verse three. This uh, priest called Ahijah. His family tree reads like a who's who of everyone disastrous in Israel. Basically, I don't know what I don't know what your family's like. Uh, whether you're very proud of them, whether you come from a very illustrious family tree, or or whether there are a few sort of uh, criminals in in your background, well the Highter has the most disastrous family tree. Uh, Can you see that in verse 3? Ichabod, Uh, Ichabod Uh, His name means no glory. He got that name when the ark was stolen from Israel. It's a particularly low point in Israel's history. And then Simeon. uh, Can you see him mentioned there? Um, I think I mean um, uh, Phinehas. He was another um, another bad man. Slept around, had a taste for helping himself to people's sacrifices. Then Eli, do you remember him? He was a glory stealer. He was heavy. And he fell over and broke his neck. But he was heavy because he'd stolen the heaviness from God. he tries tried to take the glory from God. Saul is being lumped together with Israel's great rejected leaders. They're a mixed bunch, I can tell you. And he's sitting under a pomegranate tree far from the action. But Jonathan climbs down one cliff and then he climbs up the other cliff with his bare hands. Now, those cliffs are still there uh, to this day. If you you look behind me, those are the two cliffs that are mentioned in this very part of the Bible. One's called Boses, and one's called Senna. Uh, Those names mean literally Slippery and Thorny. (laughs) And John, climbs down one. I think it's the one on the left-hand side. And he he climbs up the other, the one on your your right-hand side, and he attacks the Philistines. And the first is nice panic, uh, it's a panic, it says in verse 15, you remember, sent by God. And finally, verse 16, Saul joins the sort of mopping up operation. So the result in verse 23 is the Lord saves Israel. It's his victory from start to finish. That's the, that's the story of the first half of the chapter. But do you see what we're meant to note? Firstly, that however suitable he looks, Jonathan will never be king. It's a really sad thing. Jonathan will never be king. If, if if you were here last week, you might remember why. Such a sad thing, isn't it, when you see wasted potential? Back in chapter thirteen, we saw briefly last week. You can always catch up with the recording on the uh, on the website if you want to see if you want to hear that. Back in chapter thirteen. Saul has decided when that there are occasions in life when it's best not to do what God says. That was Saul's decision. He decided that there were occasions in life when it's best not to do what God says. A disobedience gap. Do you remember that? Have you have been aware of that in your own life this week? And uh, chapter 13, verse 14. Samuel says, Your kingdom will not endure. Your kingdom will not endure. Jonathan will have made a great king, wouldn't he? Uh, but it's never going to happen. No king share. Uh, But there is plenty of courage. Jonathan is is, is bold and he's daring and he's, and he's brave. Back in the previous chapter Saul started panicking because he only had 600 people left. Okay, Jonathan has well, he's got, he's got one person left, hasn't he? He's got his armor-bearer, um, and that's it in verse 6. But notice what he says. Let, let me read out verse 6. This is where his courage comes from. This is the roots of his courage. Verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer. He was probably pretty young himself, actually. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. See what he's saying? How'd you put that into your own words? Jonathan's saying what leaders have been saying and continue to say all the way through the Bible. It's a remarkably consistent theme all all the way through, that God can do anything. Amazing thing to know. Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? Job 42, I know you can do all things. Jeremiah 32, nothing is too hard for you. Luke 1, nothing will be impossible with God. Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. Mark 14, 36, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? Just about to go to his death. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you god can do anything jonathan says but but he's not going to presume on god's plans that's why he says um perhaps that perhaps the lord will act on our behalf just like that greater king jesus in the garden of gethsemane he, he said abba father everything is possible for you and then he says yet yeah, not I will, but what you will be done. He's not going to presume on God's plans, and, and we can learn from courage like that. We, we can we can learn to practice. If I can put it like this, risky faith. Risky faith. I I, I heard someone use a famous quote in a talk yesterday. This is, this is what it says. I'll explain it in a minute. See, see if you've come across it. Famous quote. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. It's a good quote. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. If you went into a disco and you couldn't hear the music, you think people have gone bonkers, wouldn't you? You have to be able to hear the music in order to understand what what people are doing. The point is this, Jonathan can do something apparently mad because he can hear the music of God's power to save. He can hear that music and so he can do something apparently mad. And the question is, do we ever take risks simply because we know our God? Do you say that you take risks simply because you know something about your God? You know, once upon a time, people used to think that Christians were um, just deluded, slightly eccentric. Times have changed, I think. Now people think that Christians are dangerous. I hate to think the risks that some people at church have taken, and I know they have, In inviting the whole of their company to a Christmas Explore course. That could damage your reputation, couldn't it? Or or invite all their friends along to a birthday party where someone's going to talk about Jesus. People at church are doing that. That could set your friendships back, couldn't it? Or, um, or, Or take two years out of a promising career in order to become an apprentice. That's going to be on your CV for the rest of your life. Or maybe in your resume you put that you are a Christian and that you go along to church. That could come up in an interview, couldn't it? And not altogether, positively. Or or, or give away a proportion of your savings when the world economy is tanking. Practice risky Christianity. Those who hear not the music think the dancers man but take courage because we've heard the music of god's unstoppable power to save and so we'll take the risks as we follow him that's jonathan he's got courage but no kingship he's, he's the right person but he doesn't have the right position and then there's saul in in verses 24 to, to 52 he has the position but he's not the right person. He has he has kingship but no courage. Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience. Sometimes you can be having the most amazing celebration, and 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 then it all goes wrong. Uh, I remember a few years ago, um, learning that I passed my finals, and I was I was, I was going to qualify as a doctor, and uh, we went out to a very spanky restaurant on Charlie House Square and there was a friend of a friend there who got so aggressive with the waiter um, that there was just this massive scene and things just got worse and worse and we were all really embarrassed and in the the end we all had to leave and it it cost us a lot of money. Such a thing. It should have been one of the greatest nights of celebration in our life and it it all went a bit wrong. And God's people should be having a massive celebration in the second half of this chapter, yeah? They've just had the most amazing victory. Have a look at verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day. Because Paul put some crazy restrictions on his army. And he... he it happens sometimes, doesn't it? People make a sort of superstitious declaration of self-denial, which is totally unnecessary. And that's what Saul does on behalf of his army. He says, no one's going to eat anything. That's how uh, things get worse and worse. They just they're, they march 20 miles over the hills, and in the end they're just so starving hungry that um, But they just slaughter meat and and start eating it with um, with blood in it, which is against against God's law. And then there's this sort of mock trial, and um, Saul ends up um, sort of announcing a death sentence on his son, who who has just saved the entire country. And then at, at the end of, of verse 45, the men of Israel sort of have to form a ring around him just to protect him from this crazy king Saul. And um, they end up overruling the king. They end up sort of running the country. It really is a tragedy unfolding. It's a slow motion car crash. But, but what we're meant to notice is 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 how far Saul falls short of the ideal king. How far Saul falls short of the ideal king. You see, um, the problem is that he's too self-centered. Have a look down at verse 24, if, if you've got 1 Samuel 14 there. Verse 24, notice it's all about Saul. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. It's become personal for him, you see. So now the troops tasted food. You ever had a boss he made a commitment your company couldn't keep just to settle a personal score? Well, then you know what it's like. Um, Saul's self centered. So you see what happens next. He steers the people towards sin. Verses 31 and 32. I mean, they're, they're responsible, but he steers them towards it. So, verses 31 and 32. That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Eidolon, and that's the, the 20 mile hike, they were exhausted. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? I ran 5k this morning after a curry. And I've had plenty of lunch. Verse 32, they pounced on the plunder. Now, of course, the people are responsible, but, but Saul doesn't have the courage to back down. So in the end, Saul sort of surrenders all support in, their, in, in the country. Have a look at these two verses. Verse 36, he wants to go and pursue the Philistines, so the people say, Do whatever seems best to you. Verse 39. He declares the death sentence on his son. Quote, but not one of them said a word. Verse 40. Saul speaks to the Israelites. They reply, do what seems best to you. Yeah, whatever, whatever, Saul, if that's what you want to do. So in the end they have to tell Saul what to do. The king king is supposed to stop the people from sinning and, and now it's exactly the way around you see. The people have to stop Saul from sinning. It's the problem of leadership. It's the problem of leadership. Israel has always needed a king in order to lead them the right way, in order to lead them God's way. Do you remember that constant refrain in, in the in the book of Judges that said that every man was was doing what they wanted, every person was doing what they wanted because Israel had no king. Israel needed a king to lead them the right way, and, and that is an issue that affects the whole human race. The need for leadership. But the problem is this, you see, unless you can get the the right person in the right position, then you will always have self-serving leaders who, who try and force you to compromise because of their pride. And is the church immune from bad leadership. There, there are a great, I say this you know, to my sadness. There are a great many church leaders who pursue their own agendas and put great burdens on other people and make great demands because they want to make a point or build their reputation. It's a tragedy. Church, you when it comes to it, lack courage. Well, people feel that anyway. Um, or a criticism of the church in the paper this week. I read some of the comments online. One person had simply written this. The Anglican Church, standing for absolutely everything, so as to stand for absolutely nothing. If you feel that frustration of saying I want to ask you to tea, say I want to invite you to tea, and those who examine Jesus Christ, just have a look at him. Have a think about him. You know, when I first heard about, about Jesus Christ when I was a teenager, I was so struck by who he was. Because he, almost alone, I think, has the position as as the ruler, the king of kings, the the one who has all of God's authority to, to rule over the world. He has executive authority. He has real power. He has genuine kingship. He's worthy of all praise and glory and honor. He has the position and the person He has the character, which is so full of integrity. So full of integrity. He didn't come to serve himself, you see. He wasn't self-serving anyway. He himself said, the son of man, referring to himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sure, isn't it? A leader with, with that much executive authority who, who deliberately comes in order to, to serve others. And he, he came to unburden us from, from the slavery and oppression of sin. He didn't come to put extra burdens on us. Please, please don't think that Jesus came to burden you with unnecessary rules. There is liberation in following Jesus, it's so liberating. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. And following him is the way to true freedom. And, 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 and Jesus came not to curse sin, but, but to, to deal with our sin by taking it on himself. Life perfectly lived so that he could then take responsibility for everything that we've done. He doesn't, he doesn't lead people into sin. He, he takes the sin on himself and pays for it in full on the cross on which he died. John the Baptist said this of him, look, the Lamb of God, it's a picture of sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nothing can stop him from saving, he is the leader to follow. And I think the danger is that we just get so cynical about leadership that we think we'll never find anyone worth following. And So really for our own protection, we just decide that we're gonna keep ourselves to ourselves, or at least we'll just muddle through. Are you in danger of that? Take a look at Jesus. Please, if you want to do that, just get in touch with me or or someone else. uh, Jeremy at trinityhisington.org It's such a privilege this morning of going through a part of the original source documents about Jesus with um, seven or eight people. If you want to join a discussion group like that, or if you want to just meet up with a friend to read the Bible, then please do. Take a look at Jesus. What have you got to lose? And if you've already done that, then commit to Jesus. What's holding you back? It is is good to be led by him. Take risks for Jesus. Because he will look after you. And here's the King through whom God unstoppably saves. I'm going to pray just as we finish. And then I'll hand back to John. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that nothing can hinder you by saving. And that is because Jesus Christ has already died and taken responsibility for our sins. He isn't self-serving. He doesn't place extra burdens on us. To follow him is liberating. And he comes to serve us. I pray, Father, that when we found that perfect King, that we would follow him, that we would commit to him, that we would know that he will look after us. Please, Father, help us to be served by and saved by your King, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.